You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to Real Talk with me, Mason Bray. Thank you so much for joining me this week. And on this episode, we get off to a little bit of a weird start, but um, just a little background. On my recording software, it does like a 3-2-1 countdown, and I always talk about how cute it is just to like break the ice. Little secret for Real Talk with Mason Bray. But we started out with a great laugh about that. So here is this wonderful interview. If you want to follow me on socials, it is at underscore realtalk underscore pod on Instagram and Twitter, and then at realtalkpodcast on TikTok. Now into the episode. Countdown every time, and I love it. <laughs> it's like iCarly. Oh, wait. That's, yes. That, okay, good. I was like, is that too too long ago? <laughs> no, I love iCarly so much, and all the clips keep popping up um, on my TikTok for you page. I'm like, oh my God. That was so long ago. It was high quality entertainment. <laughs> it was. That and like Disney Channel in its prime. I was talking about this in class this week. In its prime for me is like Good Luck Charlie. Yeah, I, I agree. I was talking about that recently too. I was like, whenever they got that show about the dog that could talk, it was over. Dog with a blog. <laughs> that was that was the point of no return. That's when it was just so unbearably bad. <laughs> And I'm keeping this in the episode. Okay. <laughs> so, hi, everyone. Welcome. Um, today, I'm joined by Meg Masseron, who is a wonderful journalist and nighttime reporter at Playbill. Meg actually was my first giveaway winner when I did a giveaway back in 2021, which was so crazy and also part of the wonderful Twitter community for theater, which I spend hours on every day. So hi, Meg. Hi. And I didn't know that I entered your giveaway. <laughs> Because I just, I think it was like the only rule you had was to like the photo. Just like the post. And so I'm just like scrolling my Instagram and I'm like, oh, Mason posted something like, and then you DM me and you're like, you what? And I felt bad because I didn't actually try. No, because so I like, I had the results and like I had everyone who liked it and like met the criteria, which the criteria was low. Um, I could tell. <laughs> um, but like, I had a whole list of everyone. And I'm like, I can't just pick my family. Yeah. Um, because at that point, like, I was still growing. Who was liking my posts? Still am, but like, I couldn't just pick my family. So I was like, this person, yay! <laughs> I mean, the pullover kept me very warm last winter so yay it did go to good use i just felt guilty because i was thinking there has to be someone who like was actually really hoping they won <laughs> you know what you've resolved something that has truly been on my chest for for a year now so that's great we productive interview so far and we're two minutes in usually i have therapy on sundays and i don't today but now i feel like i still accomplished it yes <laughs> Add that to my resume. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I told a joke this week. I was like, you know what? I can't afford therapy and voice lessons, so I just complained to my voice teacher. No, I think that's an actual phenomenon because I did the exact same thing when I had a voice teacher and I had actually stopped seeing my therapist because my insurance had changed. And I, I swear it was like 20 minutes of the of the session was just me complaining and then the rest was like warm-ups okay we're gonna sing some carousel 
Um, mine asked me like, he's like, how was your week? And I'm like, vocally or just like in general? <laughs> he's like, in general. And I'm like, oof, you don't want to open that door. Just wait until you become one of those people that like gets like an actual Broadway actor as a, as a voice teacher. It's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. Um, mine currently works for Emily Kristen Morris, like her studio. Yeah. Um, he's great. His name's Dan. I'm going to shout him out on here because he's great. I feel like I trust someone named Dan. Yeah. Dan's are so comforting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I will send him this clip. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Be like, see you next week. Aw. So jumping in, can you tell me your path to now working at Playbill and working as a journalist on Broadway? Yeah. Um. So I always loved, well, that's a lie. I didn't always love theater. I started really loving theater in high school um, because I joined high school theater, but I knew very, very quickly that I was not talented. <laughs> and I, I know that like, that's like a whole thing where like, oh, you can't just say you're not talented. Anyone can be talented if they try and they work at, yeah, I didn't have time for that. <laughs> I didn't have money for that. <laughs> I was not about to go to workshops. And although I did get a voice teacher at one point, it was just a short term thing for fun. Um, I knew that like there were people that were born a lot further ahead with talent <laughs> than I was and I was gonna have to put in way too much time to get there but I was already good at writing and I had always been good at writing and I had wanted to be a journalist since I was like in fifth grade and I had like a bare concept of what a journalist was and I I hardly knew what it was um, and my high school actually started doing this like regional high school theater critic club thing, which was so niche. And I'm so glad that happened, um, where we went to local high schools and we like reviewed their shows and they reviewed ours. And then I was like, oh, I want to be a theater critic. And all the adults in my life were like, you have better odds of being an astronaut, Meg. <laughs> and I was like, Ouch! Because of course, like anyone outside of New York thinks there's one critic in the entire world and it's like the New York Times theater critic, which is not true. And um, they're usually like so problematic. Right, right. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to put that one away. I already didn't even I didn't even take out the performer thing. So I don't need to put that away. So I was like, what do I do? I love theater and I love journalism. But apparently that doesn't exist according to no one in New York that I've spoken to, because I haven't spoken to anyone in New York. So I put that away and I was like, okay, I'm going to work for BuzzFeed. That's the plan. That is my plan. And then I was 19 years old and I randomly managed to score a ticket to like the Phantom 30th anniversary gala performance. So there was like a red carpet and it was a whole thing. And I'm just standing, staring at Sierra Bagas on the red carpet and it clicked in my head that there were like 20 reporters there, like interviewing Sierra, taking photos, yada, yada. And I was like, wait, it's it's not true that journalism and theater is not a thing because there are like 15 of them here tonight. So I'm going to be one of those 15, which thank God there are more than 15 theater journalists in the world. Um, but even if there were only 15 at that moment, I was like, no, I'm convinced. I'm going to do it. So I transferred to college in New York. I went to Marymount Manhattan and I did a major in digital journalism and a major in theater history um, because I 
felt like I needed to know what I was talking about. Um, I loved theater. I enjoyed theater, but I wasn't well read in it. And then my second year at Marymount, I accidentally got published um, in TDF Stages, which is like TDF's, you know, kind of online magazine situation. Um, I pitched to them just on a whim and I gave them three ideas and the two of them were like painfully basic, which I didn't realize because I was like, what, 21? And I just had no concept of what people had already written. And then one of them was like, what if I trauma dumped about Phantom of the Opera and a really like bad situation ship I was in? <laughs> and of course, TDF is like, oh, yes, let's do this. <laughs> so that became my first published article in my life. <laughs> um which was a choice, but I stand by it. And then after that, I freelanced a few more times for TDF while I was still in college. And then I started freelancing for Theaterly once I was kind of on my way out of college. And then once I graduated, um, I did Theater Mania. I did American Theater. And then I actually got a, a like part-time temp job at Playbill as a data analyst, <laughs> which was something that I was just doing just for a job. And it just coincidentally happened to be a playbill. But because I did that job, I was probably one of the first people to know when a writing job opened up. So I applied and here I am. Yes, that is so wonderful. And there's so many things that I want to dive into. But first, let's talk about your freelancing um, for TDF and Theater Mania and all that kind of stuff. What well, first, I want to like clear up the myth of like there isn't there isn't journalism in theater, which is it's wrong um, because yes. there's so many opportunities, and I think it's growing even more to give more representation in that area. But is it possible to freelance your way through and get your way into the industry? I know that it worked with you, but how accessible is that currently? I would say that breaking your way into theater journalism, it's kind of it's kind of like for me, it felt very all or nothing. It was like, I hadn't written anywhere. And then once I wrote one place, it kind of became a little more seamless to go from one to the next. So I think your biggest priority is going to be just getting that first thing published. Um, and if you can make that thing something that sets you apart one way or another, then that's even better. So obviously, my personal essays were personal, which made them different from other things that had already been written. I know I think the thing that probably set me apart the most when I started going to other publications was I had a piece that was kind of like a, you know, a social commentary piece. It was, why does no one on Broadway wear my dress size? That was what it was called. And it also happened to get a lot of traction online. So I think it was the combination of being able to think of like something that is a little bit different shouldn't be different, but it is. And then something that also got traction before. So once you kind of have that perfect formula for like that art, that one article that you can take to other places and be like, by the way, I wrote this, then I think it's, it's not that hard to break into once you've done that. Um, it also really, really helps to, to build a good relationship with whatever editors you've worked with, because a lot of editors that I've worked with have referred me to other editors. So when I, did my um, Beanie Feldstein manifesto, as I call it, for American theater. Um, I didn't know where to pitch it at first, and I sent it to David Gordon at Theater Mania, 
knowing that it wasn't a theater mania piece. And I just asked him, like, do you have any idea where I could send this? And he actually referred me personally to American theater because he was like, I think that would fit them pretty well. Um, So just making sure that you just have a good relationship with them and also that they know kind of what you want to do and where you want to go because they will look look out for you. Um, I have a really good relationship with every editor I've ever had and I have that to thank for all the help that I've gotten. Yeah. And there's some guests who um, don't like to talk about the networking side of things, but I think networking and like keeping those relationships is so, so important. It's so important. It's been so important to me, not necessarily for like, you know, the immediate superficial reasons that people think where it's like, oh, it's all about everyone, you know, but just because my editors and any quote unquote connections, or as I call them friends that I have are just they always provide me with the insight that I need to know where I'm going next. Even if someone doesn't directly kind of open a door for me, so to speak, they kind of teach me how to open doors based on how they've done it before. And that can sound very transactional, but I don't think it's any different than your normal everyday friendships. I mean, you have friends that you go to for relationship advice. You have friends that you go to for, you know, family friendship advice. So I don't necessarily look at networking is being as cold as some people say it is I think that we're just helping each other out the same way that you know I help my friend when she's talking to a guy and she doesn't know what to say this week I had an an interview I think it'll be out by the time that this one's released but with Janine Scott from the Broadway League and she was wonderful she said something she was like and now that we've met Mason you're part of my network and like you can come to me with anything and I'll come to you if I have anything that fits you and it really touched my heart to see that connection and like that like I'm actually doing something with this and it's wonderful to make these connections and for other people to have that as well to find a way into their industry by just talking with people and having friends is so wonderful and such a great way for our industry to connect and shape the future of what the industry is. And I really have for a long time admired and thought that it's really smart kind of what you're doing at your age, um, because you're not only, you know, making those connections, but you're doing so in a way that kind of teaches you everything about that person does about what that person does by, you know, putting them on the podcast and uplifting their stories and their narratives. So you're not only fostering, you know, some sort of relationship with them, working relationship, professional relationship, but you're getting that information that might help you or someone else someday because everyone can just listen to your podcast and learn whatever they need to. And I think that that's, I I think it's brilliant. I think you're really setting yourself up for, for success and it's so smart. And I wish I had thought of it when I was 17. (laughs) It's crazy. If I would have told Mason Bray in 2020, what this would have become and like that I'm still doing it, it would be insane. Cause like I always started YouTube channels and I was like, hi, guys, welcome back to Mason Brave Logs. <laughs> One thing stuck, and it's this. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I tried a lot of things when I was younger, too, that absolutely did not stick. And it's pretty crazy that the one thing that stuck was the one thing that I wanted to stick the most. It's I think I think we know what we're meant for and we're very intuitive about it. And the only time that we don't find what we're meant for is when we let other people's judgment get in the way or how they perceive your chances. I think the fact that we have that gut feeling in us of knowing like where we're meant to go 
means that the chances are ours to make. Yes. That will be the quote um, for the episode. 15 minutes. Yay! (laughs) So, also, if anybody has um, tips, like that's listening to this for tips how to remove a YouTube account, send them my way. (laughs) The vlogs are still out there. Wait, what? You can't just delete it? (laughs) Well... Hmm. I, I'm going to have to think about that because I, I I do know my way around <laughs> I'm like, a bit of a like a little hack your old account situation. I'm I got I'm going to call up YouTube and be like, please, please remove this. Just email them, honestly. <laughs> um. <laughs> so at Playbill, um, what is your position as a um, nighttime and weekend ed- editor? reporter reporter yes yeah i know i know i don't know why that that happens that slip up happens but it does <laughs> so i basically am just doing what the daytime reporters do at night so while they've gone home for the day and they're you know making their dinner and chilling out i was chilling out earlier making my lunch and now i'm handling anything that comes in last minute so like show cancellations or just like anything you know crazy um and also just sometimes like press releases just come in at night probably because they think that we'll handle it in the morning but sometimes I'll just get it out of the way at night if that's what my editor wants or if I'm just looking for a little more to do um and then also I work both weekend days I work Saturday and Sunday so I'm just kind of ensuring that like you know everything is supervised (laughs) Almost at all times, like except for like, you know, really late at night. Yeah. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Just like a general wondering question, what is your sleep schedule with that? Oh, God. So I actually have always struggled with my sleep schedule. I've always struggled with, you know, staying up way too late just to wake up early. And I actually finally, when I graduated college, uh, got into a really good sleep schedule. I was really proud of myself. I've never like I naturally am not good at waking up super early, so I didn't force myself to do that. But I was getting up at like 10 every day um, consistently, and I was falling asleep like consistently at the same time every night. And then I got this job, and I'm I'm still adjusting to it. Um, there, there have been a lot of naps to try and overcorrect. Eventually, I think I'm going to get into the routine of falling asleep at like 2 a.m. and waking up at like... 11 a.m. and I would go to sleep right after work and I've tried that since I've started but I think the the problem so far has been that I writing is something that you have to keep your mind very sharp to do it's not the same as like when I used to work at a pizza shop at night and I was able to just kind of go through the motions like very robotically just give people their pizza um it's something that I need to keep you know my inner library and my inner vocabulary you know very quick-witted Um, so I have to be extremely alert (laughs) when I'm working. So then once I stop work, I 
can't just go to sleep. Like uh, my brain is so turned on. Um, so yeah, I think I've accepted now that I'm just going to be going to sleep very late, even though that's something that I always hated and wanted to change about myself. But you know what? Let this be a lesson that sometimes you can't change. (laughs) And that's okay. That's valid. Yeah, it is. I mean, especially now that it's my job, I have an excuse now. So (laughs) yeah, going more into the critic side of theater journalism, I know that, um, Ayanna Prescott on Twitter she had left theater being a theater critic because she didn't want to um, put down art. Um, and I think that's a really important thing because there's so many different stories that are being told and to put down some of those because you don't like them. And most of the critics aren't the target audience of that. So, of course, they wouldn't like it. What is your perspective on where critiquing is right now in the theater industry? That's a fun question. It's super fun. Well, super hard to answer too, because I never really had the opportunity to fully become a critic, which I'm okay with. I had my first review published like two months after I started the Playbill job. And then it writing reviews doesn't really work in tandem with the role I'm in right now. So I'm not able to write reviews at the present moment. So I don't have as lived of an experience as I should to speak on, you know, where criticism is right now. But the value that I see in criticism, which I would not necessarily apply today or yesterday or 30 years ago or 50 years ago, but just conceptually as an idea, is I see criticism as serving two really important purposes. One is to inform the public. Um, There are people all over the country that know that there's a show coming up in a season and they know, you know, the plot based on what the website says and they know who's in it but it's a big gamble to pay you know the the price that comes with booking a ticket in advance because you can't get rush tickets a lot of times when you're planning a trip ahead you're coming all the way from like Wisconsin or something um and it's just it's just a big gamble when you don't know if you're gonna like it so I think that a good trusted critic is seeking not to speak to the performers or the director or the writer, but to the audience and to say, I think that this is well worth your time and and your resources to see, or I think this would be suited maybe more if, you know, you're looking for a comedy, but not so much if you're looking for something serious. And then I think the second really, really important purpose that criticism serves that, you know, I've really appreciated studying theater history is just at recording history. A lot of the things that I've used as a resource when I've done kind of like archival work uh, for a college project, or even when I was writing a Phantom article last week, is just going back on reviews and seeing what was said at the time. Because not only are you going to find critics saying like, oh, I saw this and I thought this, but there's a lot of like information in there that gets lost over time. Like the Phantom review that I read was the only a source of information I could find that talked about what the kind of um, hype leading up to Phantom was the months before it opened. I couldn't find any other written document that said kind of like how Americans were reacting to Phantom transferring from the West End, but that review did say that. It said um, people had camped out overnight just to get a block of tickets that wasn't even, you know, for the first few months of the show. It was like a year out in advance. 
So I, I really value criticism for those two reasons. And it's super, super unfortunate that, of course, a lot of times, sometimes it that that vision, I think, gets lost by not just some critics, sometimes just even from a single review, maybe not the whole person, the whole critic themselves. Um, so I think an industry conversation about what our goal is for criticism is is vital to have in the coming years and also who the reviews are speaking to, because I think the reviews should really be speaking to the audience, not, you know, the people in the production. 1000%. And there was a lot of overshadowing of the good reviews and the good that came out of the Funny Girl revival with like the Beanie Feldstein's slander, which was so heartbreaking for me because she worked her butt off to get to that point And to see that was horrendous. Yeah, it was. And I mean, my biggest concern with what happened with Funny Girl was actually more the audience perception and kind of what audiences were saying, because I think for the most part, most of the reviews, and I say most, (laughs) did an okay job of critiquing Beanie's performance without tearing Beanie the person to shreds. Yeah. And that is because I think that critics know that that is, you know, kind of how you should be doing things. You should not be speaking to the actor. You should be speaking to the performance or more so to the audiences who are going to see this performance. But because, you know, the general public doesn't really know how to critique media because it's not their job to do it. That's when it got really, really, really out of hand. And I do think that that could have been emboldened by, you know, the critiques that were not as responsible. Yeah. And that leads to a topic that I've just recently added to my show. And I'm, I kind of want to craft something around it with like, whether that be writing or like just a showcase of all the answers in some way. But so there's been like the closure of K-pop, which was framed around like, oh, their marketing started too late. And like Diana, how they figured out their voice too late. What do you think we can do as an industry to come back and get our footing with promoting shows like that and doing like finding the purpose of journalism with history and all that kind of stuff to keep shows running longer. So I wish that I had a really good intelligent answer to this, but marketing is so far outside of my experience. I think that marketing brains and journalism brains, it's, it's, it's sometimes the Venn diagram is a circle, but sometimes it is two circles that are so far away from each other and they do not touch at all. Um, But I, I will say that from what I can tell is that the marketing that I've seen that has been really, really solid is marketing from really young and really diverse marketing teams that are, you know, BIPOC and Gen Z. Um, Because I think that something that the world was not quite prepared for was the internet. It, It spiraled into something that no one I think ever envisioned it would. And it's kind of its own world now. And Thankfully, because of that, we get to see so many different perspectives online and a one-way method is is not going to work anymore. It's not one size fits all anymore. So I think diversifying perspectives and, you know, outreach and who you're trying to market to is probably your best bet. Don't just focus on one singular group and make sure that your marketing team reflects that. Absolutely. Diving into your college experience with Marymount, um, I know that we've talked about this off of the podcast, and I just want to get your feel for your experience there, um, bad or good. 
I can't speak super well to um, kind of like the the performance experience at Marymount because I was never a BFA, nor did I take any performance classes, except I took like one directing class because um, it was a requirement. Also because I thought it would be interesting to get a director's perspective in my life. Um, but I can speak to kind of the more businessy things, both with my journalism major and also because I wanted to be a theater journalist, I knew that I kind of needed to learn a bit more about the business side of Broadway than the performing side. It's important to know how performance works and also that, like I said earlier, if I'm a critic, you know, I kind of know what I'm talking about when it comes to people's performances. Um, but I, I definitely knew that like I was really going to be operating on the business side. So I would say that Marymount probably is a really good option for like arts administration, um, you know, theater marketing, because not only do they have an excellent, excellent communications program that I can't speak highly enough, um, but there are a few specifically like arts and business classes. There's a class called the Business of Broadway that I actually did not get to take and I'm still sad about it. Um, there's a history and missions of arts institutions class that I took um, with, oh my gosh, I love that professor. And I'm trying to remember her name. I think her name is Janie Saunders Tiller. And I believe she worked at the, like the WP theater. Um, and that was a class focused a lot on, you know, like not-for-profit theaters. Um, and then you also can take theater classes that are a bit more nerdy as well, your theater history classes, which can really, really help you in any sort of business theater role, because you're going to need a lot of information. And if you already have that in your back pocket, that's really, really useful. So I would say if you're kind of wanting to be more on the business side of Broadway, I can't, I can't recommend Marymount enough because the communications program is so good, but it is also overwhelmingly a theater school. So you're not going to be like the odd one out when you're like, oh, I want to do theater business. They're going to be like, yeah, that, that makes sense. You're at Marymount. <laughs> yeah. And I think for me, that would be wonderful to hear because like here, if I tell people that I want to do theater business, they're like, oh, good luck with that. Yeah, it's like, it's so niche yeah. <laughs> anywhere else. But I, I would say that even though I, I was, I think, the only person at Marymount that specifically wanted to be a theater journalist, I was not by any means the only person at Marymount who wanted to do theater business. There were so many people I knew that wanted to do arts administration, not-for-profit work, um, marketing. So you, you definitely are a, very easily able to kind of DIY your own degree and customize it to the specific industry you want to work in, especially if it's an arts industry. I love that. So back in terms of journalism to um, wrap it up, what do you think some misconceptions about journalism are that you would like to clear up now or just like talk about? Oh gosh. Um, well, journalism as a whole, there's a lot um, and that's too much to get into right now, but theater journalism, I say this in a, in a good way. I say this in a good way, but I think people often think that, um, a writer is the only person behind an article and it couldn't be farther from the truth. You have an entire team behind you that you originally pitched your article to. And then someone in that room may have heard that pitch and said, 
ooh, but what if you actually framed it a bit more this way? And that was their idea, but you end up being the one who who writes it. And then you have an editor that moves you in the right direction with your wording and your phrasing or even the headline itself. So I would say that just know that it is not an independent effort and it's kind of like we're all in this together. Um, So if you want to be a writer, you're never going to be alone. Um, And if you're kind of reading an article and you're like, oh, this is really good. I'm not the only person that worked on it. Um, So props to all of my editors for being as brilliant as they are for helping me shape pieces into what they are. Absolutely. I did want to bring up like the difference between physical like newspaper, that type of journalism into the new age of digital and finding everything on Twitter and tapping on that link. And you had theater history um, in your back pocket. So can you like talk about the difference between physical to new digital stuff? So digital journalism, which is obviously what I do, except for the rare occasion where I will have an article in like the print playbill, which I will have soon, which is super exciting, is kind of like where I said earlier, where like marketing and theater journalism sometimes is a circle and sometimes it's like a Venn diagram and sometimes it's two circles very far away from each other. This is definitely where it is just like a Venn diagram um, because you kind of do have to have a bit of a marketing intuition in digital journalism because you have to think, you know, as hard as this is to admit, what is going to get the clicks? Who's going to click on this? And if this is something that's, you know, maybe something that people don't like, is it going to get a lot of clicks? Should I report this? Um, Because, you know, it's something that the public is going to be interested in and needs to hear about. And it still goes back to the old traditional principles of journalism, like we need the whole story and the full story, no matter how hard it is to report. But then you also have, you know, the modern angle of how can we kind of spin this to get people really interested in it and to get them really engaged with it. Um, And that's definitely, I think, coming from more of like a marketing mind and a marketing standpoint as well. There have been so many, I'm like such a, a print journalist at heart where there have been so many headlines I wrote that were just like, this person did this and that's the news. And then my editor comes in and she makes it so savvy and smart and clever and makes it like something that people like want to click on because they're intrigued by it. They're like, oh, why, why did that person say that? And then you click and you read the interview and you see, oh, it was part of this, you know, quote that was pulled. Um, and that's, that's totally a marketing thing. Yeah. Um, and that part is hard for me because like, once I figure out a title, I can write a press release around it. Like I do that for my high school theater. Um, we are sending out a press release this week, I think, that I have not written oh. yet. Um, I should probably do that at some point. Yeah. But like I got I to gotta figure out a title. And I don't know what is like eye-catching. Yeah. Um, so we'll figure that out. We're doing Adam's Family. Yeah. So if you have any ideas for the Adam's Family of how to like sell that, let me know. When in doubt, just make a pun out of one of the lyrics. <laughs> that's what I that's what I do when I can't think of a headline. Um, and it's about something like very, very general Broadway news. It's not just about one show. Like when I I was assigned to do like a like a list article of like every Broadway celebrity that left Twitter. And of course, my original headline was just Broadway celebrities who have left Twitter, which no one cares about that. Um, And then I was like, I need, I need a pun. I need a pun. So I went on Spotify (laughs) and I searched musical theater playlist 
And I went down the list of like every song. And then I saw like Times Are Hard for Dreamers, which is that from Amelie, I think? Yeah. Yeah. And then I was like, Times Are Hard for Tweeters. (laughs) And that's how I came up with that. (laughs) That's brilliant. I I don't think it is because I barely thought of it. I looked at a list. (laughs) And that's okay. You, yeah, it's it's a little cheat sheet. <laughs> my teachers always tell me, use your resources, Spotify playlist. Who would have thunk? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's what that's what I do anytime I need. Sometimes the puns do just come naturally out of my musical theater nerd brain, but other times I do just scroll an entire 500 song playlist until I find something that rhymes and makes a pun. <laughs> I love that so much. Well, I cannot wait to read more of your um, articles through Playbill and all of your work as the nighttime reporter and weekend reporter and all of your other freelance stuff that you do. This was so wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.